It's, thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure to, to welcome Constantine Davros from Georgia Tech to, to visiting us just for today. Uh, so Constantine's done a whole range of different things uh, relating to uh, TCP and, and congestion control and also buffer sizing. And there's an ongoing debate inside the community on how to size, even it's a really basic question, how to size buffers inside uh, all sorts of networks. It seems like something really that we should know, but there's still quite a controversy about it. And so uh, Constantine's going to tell us about some of that today. He's, he'll be, also be around for the rest of today if people want to uh, try and catch him afterwards, then, then there'll be time for a discussion. So, Constantine, over to you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Doug. Um, thank you for being here today. Um, I will basically present you our latest work in, in this area. Uh, this is joint work with uh, Ravi Prasad, who uh, was a student at Georgia Tech. He recently graduated. Um, and with Marina Satan, who is uh, a collaborator at Bell Labs. And um, pretty much after we did this work, uh, it was, I think, uh, last spring, you know, we uh, wrapped it up. We haven't really uh, done something afterwards. The, the main reason I'm here is basically because I know that um, there are several people in, in, uh, in this group that are interested in buffer sizing. And uh, I want to see basically if uh, we have some ideas for, for future collaboration. So um, after the, the talk, I'll be glad to, to talk with any of you that has any follow-up ideas. Um, <clears throat> so this is the, the outline of the talk. Um, I will basically briefly um, talk about related work and, and the history of this problem. And um, I will show you some experimental results just to motivate um, where this is coming from. And then we will do some more uh, modeling work with uh, the problem of buffer sizing. I will um, bring up a new parameter that hasn't been investigated before, this capacity ratio uh, gamma between the output and, and, and the uh, input links of a router. And based on that uh, important parameter, we will basically uh, differentiate our models in two different ways. And based on those models, we will talk about um, what we define as optimal buffer sizing. So during the talk, if you have any questions, please interrupt me. Um, this is supposed to be more like a, a discussion. Um, this is the, the simplest model of a router. A router has several inputs, right, and several outputs. In the middle, there is typically a crossbar switch or, or some form of, of a switching fabric. And um, very often in, in this uh, router buffering, uh, uh, sorry, router buffer sizing work, we're focusing on, on the output uh, buffers. That is where typically uh, congestion takes place. And the question is how large these um, buffers should be. Um, Going back to the, to the history of things, um, you know, you may ask, why do we need buffers, right? Buffers is, is something that nobody likes, but uh, it's one of those necessary things that you, that you need to have in a packet network. Why? Because you have to be able to absorb any bursts, any, any rate variations that, that, that happen in the incoming traffic. Um, and your goal is to basically um, prevent packet losses because of those bursts. At the same time, you want to keep the utilization um, high, right? 
On the other hand, um, the problem with um, increasing the buffer size is that you can have increased delays and, and jitter. Jitter is delay variations, right? And, and that is uh, especially detrimental for um, voice traffic or other kinds of interactive, interactive traffic. So where is this um, trade-off between uh, packet losses, utilization, and, uh, and delays and jitter? Um, historically, people have been using this uh, rule of thumb, um, the bandwidth delay product uh, rule. Uh, what is this rule? It states that um, the buffer size B should be um, equal to the link capacity C, say, you know, how many bits per second you can carry through that link, times the, uh, the round-trip time, or the typical round-trip time of a connection that basically saturates that link. So, um, there is a very important implication here that the buffer requirement um, scales linearly with the capacity. And as you move in, in high capacity networks, you need to have very large buffers. In, in you know, links with gigabits per second, uh, you need to have a very large buffer, so large that some people say it's impractical to basically have um, these large memory spaces, uh, memory sizes in, in, uh, in routers. Um, if you try to derive this uh, rule and, uh, and uh, justify it based on an analytical model, the model basically considers a single TCP connection that tries to saturate that link. And uh, this buffer requirement guarantees that even when you have a congestion event, even when you have a packet loss, the uh, buffer size will be large enough to uh, keep the link fully saturated even when TCP um, decreases its congestion window. This is where this rule is coming from. Of course, um, the problem with this rule is that, um, as I said before, it can um, lead to large buffer sizes, especially in um, links that are um, rather uh, low speed links, such as you know, a DSL that you have at home. You can end up with significant delays if you follow that rule um, in, in your, in your um, DSL model. <coughs> then in 2003-2004, uh, um, a group at Stanford, um, the advisor there was uh, Nick McKeon, um, they proposed basically what we call the small buffers model. This is um, a model that predicts that the buffer requirement is, uh, again, the bandwidth delay product divided by the square root of the number of uh, TCP flows. So this was a very surprising result initially. It created a lot of discussion. Why? Because it predicts that in a high capacity link where you have many flows, perhaps thousands or millions of flows, your buffer size requirement will be very small because of this factor here. Okay? Now if you look at the math behind this, uh, this model, it is basically um, assuming that you have a large, sorry, a number n of long TCP connections, connections that are basically in congestion avoidance, and these connections are uh, completely unsynchronized. So you can apply basically central limit theorem type of arguments to argue that the 
aggregate traffic is Gaussian, and, and based on that um, assumption, you can derive this uh, formula uh, pretty easily. I should clarify here that what these folks um, were trying to do is to derive the minimum buffer size that you need to have um, full utilization, to have a utilization of 100%. They were not worried about how many losses you will have then, what is the loss rate under, those, uh, under that buffer. Um, there was follow-up work, again, by the same group, uh, Infocom 2006. In that work, basically, they moved from small buffers to tiny buffers. So uh, what does that mean? That uh, eventually the buffer requirement was just a, a constant. It doesn't have to do with the capacity of the link. It only has to do with the logarithm of um, the maximum window of the connections that go through that link. So to derive this result, you have to make some even more you know, strict assumptions. Um, you need to consider, again, uh, persistent flows meaning, you know, long-running flows that are window-limited. In other words, perhaps they are limited by the, the advertised window of the receiver. And if the, this window limit is W max, then um, in this model you have to operate in the region where uh, the aggregate window is less than the capacity. So essentially this is an uncongested link for which they derived this result. And in that case, you can um, basically do fine just with uh, this uh, constant buffer size. So this was, again, a very uh, important, very surprising result because it, it kind of bro brought things upside down, right? I mean, imagine that you work for, for Cisco or for Juniper. For decades, you have been building routers with thousands of buffers. And there are these folks that basically say, you can do fine just with, say, 10 buffers. I mean, it's a pretty major uh, change. Um, there was an opposition, in some sense, to, to these results. And we were kind of part of this opposition, as well as many other people. Um, the basic argument for this uh, reaction is that we should not only focus on utilization. Another very important metric in, in real networks is the loss rate. And if you actually uh, plot the loss rate that you see as a function of the buffer size, uh, these models that I just mentioned, like the small buffers model or the tiny buffers model, can uh, lead to a significant loss rate, you know, uh, up to 10% or so. So, yes, it is true that you can maintain 100% utilization in your link, even with very small buffers, but in that case, you will basically operate at a significant um, loss rate. And will your applications, will your users actually like that if, 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 you know, if the network drops, say, 5-10% of their packets? That was the main um, initial argument against these approaches of, of, of small buffers. Uh, there was actually work done here, as you know, um, where you folks basically decreased the uh, buffers, I think, of the... That was the, the Hamilton access link, or mm -hmm. you decreased the Hamilton access link from 100 megabits per second to 1.5 megabits per second, 
and, and you created congestion basically to see what happens when we use small buffers and the results were very similar to this. There was a huge loss rate and if I understand well, people did not like that very much. Yeah, the postal service was faster than the, uh, right. than the internet transfer. So the, in any way, what is important here is that uh, there was some experimental evidence that we need to have, we need to reconsider basically whether um, we can do fine with these small buffers or not. So, um, what I will say in the rest of the talk basically try, tries to make the, the, the following arguments. First of all, I'm not going to give you like a single golden formula that, that works in all cases, okay? What will become clear at the end of this talk is that depending on, on this parameter gamma that I will int introduce later, you can get very different results. In one case, it is true that um, you can do fine with very small buffers, just uh, uh, basically close to zero. And in the other case, you do need buffers that are close to the bandwidth delay product. So there is no, um, uh, you know, single formula that, that is the result in all cases. It really depends on that parameter. And um, what is the general uh, approach that, that we take? Well, the first thing is, we do not focus only on utilization. The main metric that we try to optimize is the TCP per flow throughput. You as the user, what do you care about, right? You care not if the link is fully utilized or even if the loss rate is 3% or 4%. What you want is to get the maximum throughput for your TCP connections. In other words, to minimize the the, the flow completion time, the, the download time, right? That's what I think most users would, would care about. So this is what we try to um, optimize. We try to derive the per flow TCP throughput as a function of the buffer size. And then essentially, you know, we all just optimize, we select the buffer size that maximizes the per flow TCP throughput. At the very high level, this is um, what we try to do. Um, I would like to mention also that our models work under heavy load assumptions, okay? Um, what you will see next assumes that the load is close to 100%. You may ask, hey, I mean, how common is that? I mean, there are not many congested links out there. Most links, as you probably know, are operating, you know, are very over-provisioned. Um, the answer to that is that when you work with internet traffic, you have to be careful with the fact that the traffic is, you know, highly bursty and it can also have, you know, long-range uh, correlations. So there can be time intervals that last for perhaps tens of seconds in which the link is actually close to saturation, even when the long-term utilization is much below 100%. So this is why we make this assumption of, of heavy loads. This is what I just said earlier, that the general approach we will follow is that we're focusing on the TCP throughput, let's say R, okay, how much you get in your connection. And uh, we want to express this as a function of the buffer size B, the buffer size at the bottleneck link. And then we want to calculate just the buffer size B that maximizes R. That's what we define as the optimal buffer size. Now, the interesting thing is that 
when you talk about TCP throughput, you all know that the TCP throughput depends typically on the round trip time, let's call it T, right, of the connection, and on the loss rate, let's call it P, as a function of the buffer size. So essentially, what you need in this expression, the throughput as a function of the buffer size, you need to express the round trip time as a function of the buffer size and the loss rate as a function of the buffer size. Okay? So, this was just an outline. Let's see how we're doing. Um, let me uh, move on first of all with some experimental results that will give you some initial you know, motivation for this. So, um, we started just to, to get an idea about how things work in practice with a router, a real router called, you know, the company is called Riverstone and we basically create a, a congested link and um, we see how um, the throughput and, and other properties change as we vary the, the buffer size in that router. We had the option to vary the buffer from just, you know, 20 packets all the way to 26,000 packets. So this just shows um, the utilization of the link, the aggregate utilization as a function of the buffer size for three different um, loads. Loads, uh, you know, you create different loads by emulating a different number of clients on that link. Clients, you know, generating TCP connections. And the only thing that I want you to notice here is that, of course, if you have very small buffer sizes, you will end up with underutilization of the link. The link will not be fully utilized, as you know, other people have also um, argued. On the other hand, if you plot the per-flow throughput, or actually the median per-flow throughput, as a function of the buffer size, now you have to distinguish between what kind of TCP connections are you talking about. I will show you here two graphs. This graph is for large flows, more than one megabyte, that spend most of their lifetime in, in congestion avoidance. Yes? Choose median as opposed to mean. Because there are outliers and, you know, the median is more robust in terms of statistics. But, um, what you see basically here is that as you increase the buffer size for these very large flows, you tend to have an increase in your, in your per-flow throughput up to a certain point, right? So in this case, if I ask you what is the optimal buffer size, you could probably say this minimum buffer size that maximizes the TCP throughput, right? On the other hand, if I show you what happens with smaller flows, these are flows that are about, you know, 45 kilobytes each, you see that the TCP throughput has a, an optimal point that corresponds actually to a much smaller buffer size than what we saw in the earlier figure. This uh, optimal buffer size here is, you know, uh, close to 10,000 kilobytes, 10 megabytes, while in, for small flows it is in the order of just 200 kilobytes. So what I want you to understand here is that there is a major difference 
depending on when we focus on large flows that spend most of their lifetime in congestion avoidance versus small flows that spend most of their lifetime in slow start. This dynamics of TCP play a, a huge role when you try to do buffer sizing. And so what's the source of the increase in throughput, increase in buffer size? Right, so for now I will just give you a hand-wavy um, argument and then later we will formalize that more mathematically. But what happens here is a very interesting trade-off. As you are operating at very small buffers, what happens? You have a lot of losses, right? And TCP gets lower throughput than the optimal because of this high loss rate. It has to, you know, retransmit many packets. On the other hand, as you increase the buffer size, what happens? You decrease the loss rate, that's a good thing, but you are also increasing the round trip time because you are increasing the amount of queuing in that bottleneck link. So you have these two you know, opposite factors. On one hand, loss rate that is worse with small buffers. On the other hand, round trip time that is worse with large buffers and there is an optimal in between. And again, I'm hand waving here because you will see this more mathematically later. And so that means there's a standing queue of some sort that's increasing the buffer size. Is that caused by the long-lived flows? By the large flows, is that an interaction between long-lived and short-lived short flows? Right, I mean in this... Um, it seems like all small flows in the link. Did you still see that? that um, Actually, what happens here is we have the same set of flows in, in both cases. Um, it's just that in this graph, we're focusing on what happens to small flows. In the other case, we're focusing on what happens in the large flows. There is a standing queue, you're absolutely right, which is mostly caused by the large flows. Right? Um, in these experiments, I didn't mention it earlier, but we are using a, a heavy-tailed flow size distribution, which is quite realistic in practice. In practice you do have, you know, most of the flows are very small, but you have a small fraction of flows that are very large. It's a heavy-tailed kind of distribution. So, um, now that we have some intuition about what happens in practice, I will show you basically two different throughput models that we use in our analysis. Um, and I'm emphasizing these are two different models because we have to distinguish between these large flows and the small flows. So the two models that we use are, I'm pretty sure you're familiar with one of, uh, of them. The, uh, we call it the L model and it's uh, simply the well-known square root formula for TCP throughput. This is the TCP throughput of these, uh, let's call them long flows. Uh, L is the packet size. T is the round trip time, including any queuing delay. Uh, P is the packet loss rate. So this is not a formula that we derived. You know, it, it exists in the literature for many years now, and it's reasonably accurate for flows that are in congestion avoidance. This other model, that we call it the S model, it's more appropriate for smaller flows that spend most of their lifetime in slow start. And that model, um, we derived uh, in this paper, it's basically the throughput as a function of the flow size, S. So S is, you know, how many bytes you transfer. Uh, T again is the round trip time, including any queuing delays. S deep is given by this term here. 
it's basically um, related with, uh, sorry, this term here, it's basically related with um, how many round trip times do you need in order to transmit a certain number of packets in slow start. Okay, so it has to do more with slow start rather than with congestional avoidance. I'm oversimplifying here my description a little bit because I don't want to spend too much time on these two models. What I want you to see is that these are two different models. They both, though, depend on the round trip time and they both depend on the packet loss rate. Right? So later what we will do is we will try to uh, derive expressions for the round trip time and the loss rate as a function of the buffer size and we will plug in those expressions in these two um, formulas to have the throughput as a function of the buffer size. This just shows um, <coughs> the throughput as a function of the flow size um, for the S model. The S model, remember, is dependent on the size of the flow, while the <coughs> L model is not dependent on the size of the flow. That's why you see here, this is the the S model curve, this is the L model curve, right? The S model curve increases with the flow size, the L model curve is more or less constant with the flow size. So these are the two models that we use. Um, let me not spend too much time on this. This is basically validation of these models with experimental results, but we can probably skip that. So, now that we know these two models, I can just show you a very simple case study. This is not a realistic model, uh, but it's very tractable and very nice. So this is for the case of the MM1BQ, right? Remember, Poisson arrivals, exponentially sized packets, only one server, and you have a buffer of M, let's say, packets, right? So in that case, you have actually expressions for the loss rate as a function of the buffer size and you also have expressions for the queuing delay in that, in that server. So you have everything that you need to express the round trip time as a function of the buffer size and the loss rate as a function of the buffer size under heavy load assumptions. So this is where you make this um, approximation that the utilization is very close to 100%. When this is true, then you get these expressions for the loss rate and for the round trip time. Okay? In that case, if you take these expressions and you go to the L model, remember the L model is the one for the large connections, congestion avoidance, you get this expression for the throughput. The throughput is basically, you know, given by this function. You see the buffer size in, uh, in this equation. The, this is the basic round trip time without any queuing delays. This is the capacity of the link. And L is the, the size of the packet. If I take this expression and I simply ask, you know, where is the derivative equal to zero? Where, where do I get basically the maximum per flow throughput? I get the very interesting answer that the optimal throughput is twice the bandwidth delay product. Not even once, but twice. Like, this argues that for these kinds of flows, not only having small buffers is, is not really the ideal thing, but actually the, the optimal thing is twice the bandwidth delay product. On the other hand, if I work with those other connections, the small connections that are mostly in slow start, this is the expression for the throughput, 
And if I derive the optimal buffer size in this case, I get something interesting that there is, of course, a, a constant here which has to do with how large the flow is, but the bandwidth delay product scales, sorry, the optimal buffer size scales with the square root of the bandwidth delay product, which, of course, you know, scales much, much more slowly than what happens here. Are you assuming that all the flows are the same amount of time? Is that, is that filtering these models? Or? Um, in this model, yes, all the connections have the same round-trip time. In the experimental stuff I showed you earlier, you know, uh, flows had different round-trip times. But for the model, yeah. So this is interesting, you know, but of course it's not realistic because we're using this MM1B uh, queuing model. So what we want to do now is have some more realistic expressions for the loss rate and the queuing delay as a function of the buffer size, but, you know, more realistic expressions. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I forgot to actually show you this slide, which I think is interesting. Let me take a step back. Um, this again is for the MM1B case. This is um, the throughput as a function of the buffer size for the, you know, small flows, the S model, and for the large flows, right? And you see basically that the optimal is at very different places. Um, this is logarithmic, so this is, you know, just a few hundreds of packets. This is, you know, many thousands of packets. So, um, okay, now let's go into those more realistic expressions for the loss rate and, and the round-trip time as a function of the buffer size. And this is the point where I want to introduce this new parameter called gamma. So, what is gamma? Suppose that this is our router, this is the, the point of interest. It has a number of input links, right, with capacity C in, and it has an output link with capacity C out. So, what we define as the capacity ratio is basically C out over C in. This is what we define as gamma. Now, just to give you some uh, real-world examples, for example. If we talk about the link that you have at home, assuming that you have, you know, DSL at home, right? Your C out, the link that goes from your home to the ISP, probably has a capacity of what? Like a couple of megabits per second? That's your C out in that case? The C in is the capacity of, for instance, the wireless network that you may have at home. It may be 11 megabits per second, it may be 54 megabits per second, right? So in that case, the C <coughs> in is much larger than the C out. You have a gamma of less than one, right? To give you an opposite example, let's talk about the case where um, um, say, the C out is much uh, higher than the C in. It may be that if you look at the, uh, again, uh, the case of DSL, but now the next hop is, um, I don't know if you're familiar with DSLAMs. DSLAM is basically the router that ISPs use to aggregate many of these DSL links, right? So in that case, um, the input links are these DSL links that come from your place, from your home, 
they may be 2 megabits per second each and this output link from the DSLAM may be 100 megabits per second, a gigabit per second. So in that case, you are operating in the inverse capacity ratio. Now, now that we, I defined basically this parameter gamma, I will show you how uh, the loss rate in particular as a function of the buffer size depends very heavily on, on this parameter gamma. So we have identified two cases. One, when gamma is less than one, so remember this means that the output capacity is much lower than the input capacity or lower than the input capacity. When gamma is less than one, you basically tend to have that the loss rate as a function of the buffer size drops as a power law of the buffer size. Okay, so alpha here or A here is, is a constant, B is the buffer size, you have a positive uh, B here, right? The loss rate drops as a power law of the buffer size. In other words, the loss rate drops very slowly with the buffer size. This is when gamma is less than one. When gamma is larger than one, you tend to have an exponential decrease in the buffer size. So, so an exponential decrease in the loss rate. So the loss rate as a function of the buffer size, you know, drops exponentially with the buffer size. Now, are these two expressions that we proved in any way? No. I mean, these uh, are coming from uh, empirical results that we have with simulations and regression kind of analysis. And I can give you um, insight or, you know, analytical insight about why they are probably true. Uh, if you want, we can get into that or we can get into that after the talk. But um, the, the main argument goes as follows. Um, this is the case where we're worried about the gamma being larger than one. In this analytical argument, I will assume that gamma is much larger than one. So how does the argument go? The argument goes like this. When <coughs> C in, the input capacity is much lower than C out. Then what happens? How long does it take for the output link to transmit a single packet of size L? Well, it takes this much time. The size of the packet divided by the capacity of the link, right? This is the time it takes to transmit a single packet. On the other hand, how long does it take between the arrival of two successive packets from each of the input links. Okay? <coughs> each of the input links has a capacity C in. Again, L is the size of the packet, so the time between the arrival of two successive packets from an input link is delta in. Okay? Now, because C in is much smaller than C out, what does that mean? That delta in is much, much larger than delta out, right? So, the time interval between the arrival of two successive packets from the same link is much larger than the time interval to transmit two successive packets. Because of that, we claim that we can ignore correlations between the arrival, between arrivals of successive packets from the same input link. Right? Because by the time it takes to uh, 
for, uh, the time that it takes for two successive packets to arrive from the same input link is much larger than the time it takes to transmit basically a single packet. So you can ignore those correlations. So if you ignore those correlations and you have n input links and you assume furthermore that the links are independent, there are no correlations across links and they are equally loaded, right, homogeneous case, then let's say that we have a probability P that the packet arrives at the output Q from one of these input links, right, during that interval. So what happens now? What is the probability that I will receive K packets out of these N packets that I can receive? Because I have N input links, right? So what is the probability that I will receive K packets? It's basically just the binomial. Right, the binomial with parameters n and probability p. The thing is though that when n is large and p is small, the binomial distribution can be approximated with uh, a Poisson distribution. And in that case it is true, I mean it is mathematically proven that the probability of uh, you know, exceeding basically the buffer size with Poisson traffic is um, exponentially dropping with the buffer size. So this is just an analytical argument why when this assumption here is true and, and gamma is much <coughs> larger than one, you tend to have this exponential decrease in the, uh, the loss rate as a function of the buffer size. Um, there is a similar argument for the other case where gamma is much less than one in that case, obviously, you cannot ignore the correlations. The correlations of, you know, packet arrivals from the same link are very important, and that, that is actually what determines how much buffering you need. And in that case, let me not get into that, but in that case, you can basically also um, argue that the, buffer si the loss rate drops as a power law of the buffer size. On the other hand, for the queuing delay, the uh, the assumption that you can do here in either case doesn't matter, uh, the value of gamma doesn't matter, is that the queuing delay pretty much increases linearly with the buffer size up to a certain point. And, and this is the, the assumption that we will use here, that the, the round trip time has a constant component and then the queuing component is linearly increasing with the buffer size. So now we have pretty much everything we need, right? We have the two expressions for TCP throughput, the S model and the L model, these are the, the, the slow start flows and the congestion avoidance flows. And we also have two different expressions for the loss rate and the round trip time depending on whether gamma is larger than one or smaller than one. So we have four different cases totally. And for each of those cases, we can derive the optimal buffer size. This is for the case of, of gamma being much less than one. So in this case, we have that power law that I was describing earlier. Um, the power law, right, for the loss rate. And in that case, you can derive that the optimal buffer size for the large flows is basically a constant times, again, the bandwidth delay product. Remember what we had for... Um, the MM1B model, right? In that case, it was twice the bandwidth delay product. Here, you don't have this factor two, you have this 
more complicated factor which has to do with um, this exponent here and, and this parameter f but the bottom line is that you still need um, something in the order of the bandwidth delay product. For the smaller flows, the S uh, model, the expression is really ugly and basically we have no closed form solution for it. You have to numerically solve this equation to find the, um, the, the optimal buffer size unfortunately. So I cannot give you an actual formula for that. But if you look at numerical results, here is, you know, throughput as a function of the buffer size. This is for the S model. This is for the L model. Basically what happens is that for the S model, the slow start flows, you always have like a much smaller buffer size requirement than for the L model. And again, is that assuming that all the entry times are the same involved, or is that some sort of mean? So, so everything that we do in the, in the modeling side of things assumes the same round of time for all flows. On the other hand, when you work with the case of gamma being much larger than one, right, remember that in that case we have this exponential drop of the loss rate as a function of the buffer size, then you get the very perhaps surprising thing that the optimal buffer size is in both cases, theoretically, zero. The optimal buffer size is zero. You don't really need to have any buffers. Now you may say this is obviously wrong. You cannot have zero buffers, you will have many losses. But remember what this is um, doing, it's not asking the question how do you reduce the losses, it's asking the question how do you optimize throughput. And for the assumptions of this model it is true that the optimal throughput happens when you have um, zero buffer size. Now in practice of course you know you would need to have a, just a small number of buffers because you know the model makes several assumptions that would not be true in practice but the, the buffer size that you would have to have in practice would be just very very small just a, a handful of packets to deal with sporadic bursts that you may have from from different links. So this is in my opinion perhaps the most interesting comment here that Depending on this value of gamma, which has to do with the input and output capacity ratios, right? You can end up with two extremely different answers. In one case, just very, very small buffers close to zero is the optimal thing to do. In the other case, buffers in the order of the bandwidth delay product is the right thing to do. I also want to show just a few results about um, sensitivity analysis. So, here we, we simply ask this, the question, what happens if you do some errors, right, on how you choose the optimal buffer size, and instead of, you know, uh, actually using the optimal buffer size, you deviate from that by some parameter, you know, omega, right? So omega, if omega is 1, then you are using the optimal buffer size. If omega is um, larger or smaller than 1, then you start either overestimating or underestimating the optimal buffer size. And the thing that you have on the y-axis is basically this expression here is what is the relative error that you introduce in the, in the throughput in that case compared to the optimal throughput. And the interesting thing is that, uh, at least based on these results, that things are not very sensitive. Things are quite robust actually in terms of 
how much throughput you will lose if you deviate from the optimal buffer size. Um, even when the, your buffer is set to 40% of its optimal, right? Um, the throughput lo loss that you will encounter is 10-15%. I think most people would be willing to, do, to live with that. So this is interesting in the sense that it, it basically tells operational people that they don't have to worry about how do we constantly, you know, adjust our parameters <coughs> and, and, and do that. So let me wrap up and, and uh, the way I want to wrap up is by basically going back to this debate, right, that Doug also um, explained initially. We have this debate between the people that say we want small buffers and, you know, some other people say we want large buffers, right? I hope that this work basically gives some new insight in this debate and basically says that perhaps both parties are right depending on what kind of um, value of gamma you are operating under. And it is true that in some cases you can live happy, um, you can live happily if you have very small buffers close to zero as long as you are in the case where basically the input capacity is much lower than the output capacity, right? Why? Because in that case, the bursts that exist in the input traffic of each link do not matter, essentially. And what matters, the only way you can end up having queues in that case is if you have simultaneous arrivals of different, from different links. But as we argued earlier, this is essentially something that in the limit you know, if you have a very large number of input links and the links are, you know, homogeneous, like equally loaded, the aggregate is essentially no different than Poisson traffic. So you can deal, you can do fine with small buffers. In the other case, you have the input links being very fast relative to the output link, right? And in that case, just a single input link can create significant bursts, can, can create significant queues in that output link, right? If you have an, an input link, say, of one gigabit per second, feeding into an output link of one megabit per second, right? Just a, a, a burst from one link will be enough to create congestion in the output link. In that case, you need the larger buffers that are in the order of the bandwidth delay product. So that is the, the message that I want to, um, to basically um, wrap up with. And if you um, have additional questions, I skipped several slides. We can go back and talk about them more. Or, or if you have any other questions. Yes. Thank you. Do you think the conclusion would change much if you have much UDP traffic with the TCP, or is it...? Right, so the honest answer is I don't know. Um, it, it all depends on what kind of UDP traffic you, you talk about, right? So UDP essentially... What UDP says is that the protocol itself will not introduce any flow control or congestion control. It all depends on the application, whether the application, for instance, is a voice application which tends to send packets periodically in a very you know smooth way, right? A video application that uses UDP, it's 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 a completely different story. So 
the, the question in that case is what kind of UDP traffic are you talking about? And the critical question, I think, is whether it is adaptive or not, whether it, it does the same thing that TCP does, which is, you know, trying to reduce the rate if there are losses or delays. Yes. Just one quick question. Uh, why would service providers uh, buy expensive boxes to provide large gamma or small gamma? I mean, why would they over provision? What was there? I hope I didn't create a damage schedule. <laughs> okay. Um, so, if, for example, if, if they have, uh, I don't know, 10 houses connecting to the, this lamp, uh, so why would they, they buy this lamp with 100? Let, let, me, let me clarify that it's, it's not their choice, right? I mean, um, the value of gamma depends on where in the network are you looking at? You have to have at some places gamma that is larger than one and some places gamma that is smaller than one. A very, um, you know, just to give you some practical rules of thumb, right? What happens typically in a, in a network, if you look at an ISP, you typically have low capacity edge links, right? feeding into some aggregation routers and then the backbone um, of the ISP right, is all very um, high capacity links. Right? So in terms of um, this is high capacity core links. And then at the output of the ISP, you know, the traffic doesn't stay in the ISP, right? At the output, again, you have customer links that are edge links of lower capacity. So as far as the single ISP case is concerned, in this case, you have the example of going from low to high, so gamma is larger than one, right? In this case, you have the opposite, gamma being uh, you know, you go from high to low, so you have uh, gamma being less than one. Um, in in terms of um, maybe another way of asking that question is what it, the, the sort of rough analysis is based on gamma being very much less than one, or very much bigger than one. So what if it's close one. a bit bigger than one, or a bit right. less than one? So we have done uh, simulation work in that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, our, our arguments completely fall apart when you start asking what happens, you know, when gamma is close to one. Um, we have done uh, simulation work uh, in that case. And um, basically you can uh, do this, you know, approximations of either a power law or, um, or an exponential law when gamma is less than one or larger than one. You don't have, it doesn't have to be that gamma is much smaller than one or much larger than one. We make these arguments for much smaller or much larger just to provide that insight. Um, when gamma is exactly equal to one, then really it depends very much on um, the correlations that I was talking about before. Correlations of packet arrivals from the same input link. So, we didn't really talk about this, but 
if you have a single source, right, that, that sends packets through one input link, what is the arrival process in that traffic? Is it like a renewal process? Is it a short range, you know, correlations, long range correlations? So that really is what matters most when, when gamma is uh, close to one. The, the more heavy tailed, basically, the, um, the stronger the correlations are, basically, the closer you are to the uh, power law, the, uh, the power law curve. The closer you are to a renewal process, the closer you get to the exponential curve. But all of this is just, you know, uh, based on simulations. So, I want to know if you, did you talk about uh, solving the problem with the clients? Like, uh, if some change in the algorithm will uh, have some impact, good impact on this? Right, so this is, I mean, a, a very big uh, research issue, right? How do you change TCP in particular, right? This is what you mean when you say change something in the clients, right? How do you change the TCP client so that uh, they don't create these large queues at the first place? This has been, you know, an ongoing debate for many years. Um, we already know that if TCP was using delay-based congestion control rather than loss-based congestion control, it would be possible to operate the network with much smaller queue sizes. But the reality is that, you know, TCP is what it is and, you know, to change it, it has been proven very difficult in practice. I mean, many people have tried for many, many years, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult. And so in this work, we don't ask this question. We, we, we start from the, from the assumption that, you know, we have to live with TCP, unfortunately. What, uh, what can you do uh, in, in buffer sizing if TCP is what it is? And uh, another question, can you explain why when you have small flows, if I'm just over-provisioning, why there is a degradation in the, the throughput? Why you mean there is this qualitative difference between the small flows and the large flows? Uh. No. Uh, when, when I, uh, obviously, when you have large flows, you need, as you, as you showed, you need a big uh, buffer. Mm -hmm. But you said that uh, with small flows, it's better to have better to have smaller buffers. Smaller buffers. Yes. So I'm asking why a big buffer mm -hmm. causing uh, less throughput for the smaller flows. Right. So intuitively, without getting into the math, I mean, the math, you know, already answered this question, but intuitively what happens is that the smaller flows are more sensitive to the round trip time. Okay. So um, the throughput of the smaller flows, the flows that are mostly in slow start, for the small flows, what matters is how, in how many round trip times can you send a number of, a certain number of packets, right? In, in, um, using the slow start algorithm. And if there are increases in the queuing delay because of large buffers, they will affect the round trip times, right? And that will affect the, the throughput of the, of the connections. Yes, okay. For large flows, 
there is still the same issue that the round-trip time can increase, but it is, doesn't really matter as much, I mean, as uh, what happens uh, with the small flows. Okay, shall we... Thank, so, so Constantine's here for the rest of the afternoon. Maybe we can continue discussions afterwards, and let's just thank him again.